Hello, and welcome to the very last episode of the 50 Women Over 50 podcast. I'm your host, Sherry Lynn Starkey. On this podcast, I highlight women who have broken down barriers, challenged the status quo, or who've simply lived remarkable lives beyond the age of 50. My guests have included pioneering entrepreneurs, passionate activists, artists, educators, and more. Get ready to be inspired, informed, and empowered as together we extol the lives of 50 exceptional women over 50. I said this is the last episode, and it's true. A little over a year ago, I set out to interview 50 women, and this is interview number 50, my very last one for this project. So it's a special one. And it's special in more ways than one, because today I am welcoming Sandra Marcus to the show. Not only is she one of the most respected marketing communications professionals in Canada's national capital region, she's also the driving force behind the I Care for Rare campaign and podcast. As the mother of a young man with a rare neurological disease, Sandra is on a mission to improve the lives of patients, families, and caregivers living with rare disorders. In this interview, Sandra shares how her life changed when her son graduated high school and all his health and social support systems stopped cold almost overnight. Join me in welcoming Sandra to the show. Tell me about your 50th birthday. Well, Sherry Lynn, I think 2017 was a real change year for me. That would have been my 50th birthday. I don't remember my birthday. I don't have the same calendar I used to, so I like completely blank on what I actually did. But 2017, I looked back and Donald Trump was being sworn into office. I was, at that time, pre-pandemic, my business was flying. My partnership business at Brand Clarity was, was flying. We were doing lots of education work all over the province. We were doing lots of municipality work in the province. And we were doing stuff here locally, and I was running. I look back at I look back at that time now, and I think, how did I possibly do it all? I had two I had two meltdowns, one where my face blotched up, and I was seriously ill from burnout. And that's what burnout, not being able to get up, that's I felt it. For the first time in around 2016, 2017, I look back at then. It wasn't a glorious time for me. My 40th birthday was actually my harder birthday. (laughs) But I think back at around that time and I think of all the politicians yelling and screaming and just the whole tone of life changed as soon as that president got sworn in and leading up to that election. Our tone, everybody's tone changed throughout the world. And so, yeah, I I don't remember my 50s, <laughs> but in, in turning points, I do remember my 40s because I do know that I, I, like people mostly say with their 50s, they, they had a change of, of view. I did significantly have a change of view, but my 40th personally was the most difficult because I was done having kids. I knew that 50 was the next And I still had to get through schools with kids and hockey and all of those things right. and running a business. And yeah, I didn't know what was next. So, yeah, I didn't know that 
what was coming. So I mean, back to your 50th year that you don't remember that well, really. I've actually heard that a few times on this podcast. Yeah. And you, you're right about the whole climate was changing. I don't mean the actual climate, the political yes. climate changing at the time. Well, that too. Mm-hmm. But where I was going with this <laughs> was, do you think that you said that you had meltdowns? And I'm wondering, do, do you think this could, could have been part of the menopause coming on? I think it was really a perfect storm. Yes, definitely. I think I've been suffering from menopause for a, a while, perimenopause and then menopause. And I think perimenopause, I actually had a rougher time than yeah. during this this period. But so I've never focused on me. <laughs> that is that is to say. Hot flashes are nothing in comparison to what some people go through. Yes. So yes, yes, yes. it's really, and, and I... And I, I don't believe I was taking good care of myself. I was working 24-7. I wasn't eating right. When I tried to do a system of exercise, what worked for me didn't work for the business. So I, I really, frankly, didn't really focus on my own symptoms. We're expected to perform like men in businesses, and we're not men. And we have more on our plates than most men do. And... So juggling home and office, and and you are absolutely right. It's your personal health is the thing that's all, always put on the back burner, right? I'll go to the gym tomorrow. I'll start my diet next week. Yeah, I'll, I'll get, that get to the out. doctor someday soon. Yeah, but we're just too busy in the moment every day to actually do that stuff. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, dear listeners, go to the gym. Yes, yeah, your diet. And go to don't go to the doctor. Take the time for yourself because it's your business and your family are going to pay in the long run if you don't. That whole the whole pandemic. I'm still living the repercussions, but the whole pandemic was a very much a, a life changer in this house household for sure. But I want to go back to what you mentioned about acting and being like men. Honestly, I wasn't brought up to recognize that men were any different than women. I I was the same as my brother and I did things he did and he did things I did and we did things that we both didn't do. I never equated it, but in thinking back after people start speaking out and you start looking at all of the things that you're balancing and you you think, why why do I react to that situation like that? <laughs> yes, yes. I look back and most of my male bosses weren't overt, but I always made less money. Yes. In fact, I made half of what anybody else made. And then when I went on contract, I still made half of what a director was making at that time. To me, my business has never been about the money. So, because I love what I do. So, and I just, I was brought up with if I work hard enough, the money will come. And I have to say, my husband and I have worked really hard and we, we do have an, a nice lifestyle when we can go out. <laughs> but we've earned it. We've worked our tails off for I don't know how many years. Thing about pay equity, and like, there's people out there now that say that this is a fiction that's not true, and it absolutely oh. is true. But I remember finding out that a guy that reported to me was making ten thousand more a year than me, and I was not happy. No. And I went to the boss and said, "Like, what the hell's going on here?" 
And it was explained to me, well, Sherry Lynn, he's, he's the head of his household. He's, his wife doesn't go out to work. So he's, it's all on him to provide for his family. And I was like, but wow, how does, like what? <laughs> so why is what happens in his home so material to me, I guess, is the question that I'm asking. Yeah. And, well, yeah. That was the way they were raised. Yes. Uh, the male and, work. And the fact that it was offered up to me as a perfectly logical explanation was also telling. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, when I had uh, Zach and we were, so I, I took a shorter maternity leave for both my kids. Um, when I had Zach, I wanted to go back because I was feeling uh, very isolated. Yeah. Um, so I went back early and my husband at that time was um, also on disability. He had a kidney transplant. And then, no, that was the second one. That was the second one, Noah. When I was pregnant with Noah, Steve was having a kidney transplant. But I, I did get called back early right. on that one. We need you here. Yeah. What, really. uh, yeah. And then in order to deal with life as it was getting busier and busier, I had requested Fridays off. I never spoke or never really dealt a lot with my personal life and my business life. Yeah. Really kept them separate took Fridays off without pay so that I could work take Fridays off but I I still worked like I was available we had her like some electronic device back then but and I'd get phone calls and stuff I was always working yeah. uh, on that Friday I was just doing it from home <laughs> at the time but I took a significant cut I was making much less than anybody else at that time and when a uh, push came to shove when that agency ended up closing its doors I was the first one to go all right it's like oh okay um, then you started business for yourself and life changed. I went to the college environment and life, life changed dramatically there. <laughs> it sure opened my eyes. But then, yes, I did start my, I did go into business with uh, a partner and we had a successful company. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was fun, but it's a lot of work. <laughs> yes. Not that I didn't know that at the time. I'm cut for that. I, you work hard. It doesn't matter what time of day that you need to do something. If a client needs it, you do it. I'm right. very much client focused. Yes. And so I bring a lot of that on myself in terms of hard work, but it's also rewarded me with lots of really great beneficial friendships and relationships. Yes. Yeah. You said the pandemic changed life in your household. It changed life in everyone's household, but I want to hear about how it changed life in your household. <laughs> As I mentioned, I keep work and personal life very separate. I felt that if I spoke a lot about it, that it could become a something that was used as fodder for not performing or whatever. So I never let anybody see that I sweat. <laughs> so that's like such... A business, like a woman thing to say. Men never say that. <laughs> yeah. So when the pandemic came, as I was mentioning, it was on the train on the way home. The next day you wake up to spunk. Very quiet. It was so quiet uh -huh. the next day. As we all sort of figured out what we were going to do. And had been in business virtually for 10 years. So it was when I left the college environment in 2008, 12-ish, 13. I've been virtual the whole time. We never have had an office space. So we were already set up or I was already set up at that time mm -hmm. to work. And so our work continued on once everybody sort of got settled a little bit, our, our work continued on. But I didn't have 
the same passion right. anymore. Zach, my son, who was born with a rare disorder, he was in school at the time. So that gave me great relief that we had some while I was working, he was in school. Uh, he graduated during the pandemic. And I think that was the turning point for our whole family. My husband was let go. It took him a year and a half to find a job. He was gone up the flagpole in those rounds of eight interviews. <laughs> and he was in a difficult period too, because he was he's hitting 60. He's a male. <laughs> he would say because he's bald. Um, but, <laughs> but it was hard for him to get a job. And I was thankful, actually, that he was home for a, a while so he could uh, help me and support me. But I, I made some decisions during that time that uh, I needed to protect myself, protect, it, protect um, our family, and I needed to scale back significantly on what I was, my only me time, which was work. Yeah. And when, when you're faced with challenges and you need to put those aside in your mind, where do I go? I go to work. <laughs> Always take comfort in work in times of stress. Exactly. Yes. So, yeah, so I actually, I cut back on my, I, I left my practice. I, I cut back on the my own workload as well. Steve's unemployed. He's trying to get a job. He finally did get one. And then I realized very early on, I think it was sort of the first semester that Zachary would have naturally gone back to school where we had to line up transportation and programs during the day and worker support and get him transitioned again, not only with COVID on his mind, but being home in isolation, getting him transitioned again to go back to something when things were opening up was very, very difficult. And then as soon as the worker left, because they're tired, and she chose something closer to her home, as soon as she left, that whole stack just came tumbling down. And right. we've tried to start that stack of to get him back involved in the community umpteen times, and it's all come crashing down. So I think it's a bit of a destiny <laughs> for me. So you're taking, spending less time on, on work things and, and more time on managing your family's situation. Yeah, I, before I would, when he was in school, because I had the extra, I guess, support of school, although that wasn't smooth at all. That was a very, very stressful time for him being included in, in, in school with the support that he needed. It was a stressful time for me having to yell at the rooftops, explaining that for his mental health, that that couldn't be, he needed the support. So it was a very, it's always been stressful, but this time, all, there were no, there was no support mm -hmm. out there to help you. And we were doing it all. And I think for Steve, it was good because he got to do that first stack because <laughs> he was home with us. So uh, yeah. So anyway, I've cut back on my work. I haven't walked away from my work. I still love what I do. As, and I so enjoy working with you. It's yeah. just been an incredible experience, but I'm not pursuing work in the way that I did before in terms of proposal writing and all of those 
business development things. So it's so yeah. So my life has changed dramatically. I uh, really, really blend work and life now. Over the past four years, after, after turning fifty, I really blend it. It's almost indistinguishable. I'll be sitting there and I'll think of something and I'll go to my computer, but that's the only way that I can actually meet my deliverables, even in at this stage of the game, because we we just don't have any support for Zach. So knowing everything that you know now, what advice would you give your 30-year-old self? Oh, geez. I've had a wonderful career, and I've had some really great mentors. And it's really the things that are out of my control that I get frustrated with. If I have to leave an environment because I because the culture isn't right, that's I will do that. <laughs> because it doesn't fit with my values, my core values. And stuff like that. So what would I tell my 30-year-old self? Don't ever give up on your core values. You'll run into situations where you're asked to do things that aren't right or work on things that you don't feel meet your your values. Uh, Then don't. I think that is everybody should have that right. I would say hard work does pay off. It does pay off. Mm-hmm. And well, we've had to be lifelong learners. How many chasms have we crossed in marketing and communications as it has evolved into digital? And wow, we're constant learners. So keep learning. Keep learning. And don't be afraid to share your voice. I was a mentor in the IABC. <clears throat> I had this wonderful mentee. And her first question to me was about having her own business and whether... She's much younger than I am, whether or not she should. And I'm like, absolutely. It doesn't matter how old you are. You're learning on the job. Always hire better than you. Always hire better than you. Bring people in who know their stuff and Mm -hmm. do great work for a client. There's nothing better than that. Mm -hmm. But do it. Don't be afraid to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was advised when I was very early in my career that I should go out on my own. And I just didn't think, I thought, how could I possibly, I haven't been doing this long enough to be an expert in it. I need to still be mentored and learn. And and so I did put it off, I think six, seven years into my career before the first time I went out on my own. And I loved it. <laughs> I was just like, what took me, why did I wait so long to do this? So yeah. And there's a lot of young kids, like I observe that come right out of college and start a consulting for Right or an agency type thing, right out of college, and they they make a going concern of it. I was a little surprised at first when I first started witnessing this, but hey, heck, it's it works. And if they have if they have good mentors mm-hmm. and a good network of people, I was very fortunate to have established my network before I I left a, a booming practice. I I have been in this business three decades. <laughs> pretty much know a lot of people in town, but have a good network, yank on that network whenever you can. And God, you don't have to be the smartest person in the room. Like don't, don't always try to be the smartest person in the room. Or the most creative. You are the most creative. Lean on your team. This business is teamwork. Um, and if you're an individual who just wants to put your head down and uh, it's hard to do that in this yes. type of business and ha- be successful. Mm-hmm. So 
at the top of the podcast, I have told everyone about your new project, but why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you're working on right now? Mm-hmm. Well, since the pandemic, was going through change anyway. <laughs> it's a little bit more of a detour. Um, and so, again, I have a 23-year-old who graduated during the pandemic, and he has a rare neurological disorder. And we, when the support system sort of fell out and we're managing everything 24-7. And on top of that, he was provided a drug that was a known drug. It had known side effects and even after our due diligence and the pharmaceutical companies calling us every day, trying to sell us and get on more of this product and when we were going to start and all of that. But it had significant side effects that forced Steve and I to take care of him 24-7 for at least three months. We were frustrated. I was burnt beside myself with the lack of communication and information. It took us over a month to get to a point where the psychologist said it was a known side effect. So we're not knowing what's going on for a month. I was actually grieving the son of my son. I was in pretty rough shape. First, I buried myself in work for <laughs> much of the house. <laughs> and then I went through the grieving process. I finally did find some counseling support for me. We still haven't really found anything for Zachary. But I decided at that point I needed to put what I knew how to do to work. Mm-hmm. And we had been, we have been through so much in the 23 years since he was born and so much insecurity, actual fear. Now I can't get him out of the house. First of all, <laughs> right now it's going to be a long transition because he's afraid to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And, and so I decided I was going to stop crying put on my big girl pants and do something that I never thought that I would personally do something as political as advocacy for myself. I always, I've been Zach's advocate forever, but I didn't think it would have to get this far before governments responded. And as I started going through research in order to throw my communication skills at this and figure out what the strategy, communication strategy was going to be and what this idea could evolve to, I launched. I found a real lack of political ignorance and will to to help some of the most vulnerable in our population, including undiagnosed people who have telltale signs of something. I just launched I Care for Rare with your amazing help as well on, on this. So I Care for Rare is a social advocacy campaign. I don't profess to be an expert in rare disease, but I am an expert in living with for 23 years with a, a, a child with a rare neurological disease and the stages in which we go through and the last stage being the transition into adulthood where there is nothing available for these kids and they just go deeper into self-isolation and reflect on their traumas. And this gov- and governments haven't acted on what's been in front of them. So I launched I Care for Rare. 
<laughs> it's like I haven't decided whether it's a passion project or survival instinct. Both, I suspect. I, I would say both. And as you've learned about this new world coming here out of, out of the blue and joining us on this journey, it's not an easy one. And I care for Rare being able to contribute skills that I know to help other people. At the end of the day, I care for Rare isn't about me or really about Zach. We are we have gone through and have been through a trajectory that can't change. And we have to learn to cope and we have to heal and we have to move forward. So this project has been a very much a healing exercise for me. And, and what was the goal of the campaign? The goal goal the end goal of the campaign shifted over strategy shifted the more I learned. Yes. So the original goal was really to wear a t-shirt at every doctor's appointment or a hat that says I care for rare as a signal for everybody to second guess or to take a moment to look at this patient and say, oh, they have a rare neurological disease. Maybe we should do some more due diligence before we prescribe this because parents like myself. So it started out as a symbol for safety, really. And and that rare disease is a thing. As we were undiagnosed for 18 years, we lived in a land of autism. So for me to find rare disease as closest to the point of legislation that could be, that would actually could force a system overhaul politically, this was the strategy I, I chose. And so I believe I am learning rare disease world as much as everybody else on this. Every day I listen to stories. I just heard one in Toronto last week, palliative care, outgrew palliative care. There was one in London. The mother was sick with cancer. She's a single mom. And what is she going to do with her daughter when there was no housing available? The mother was pleading. Like we've been pleading with the government. People have been pleading with the government since 2012. The CHEO facility is 16 years in the making. 16 years ago, that was conceived as, a, as an opportunity to service children. Now it was like, they're going to outgrow. <laughs> so, but the system hasn't changed. And the system's not right for these folks. We, we can't be as unique as they are. We're forced to live within confines. And it's like squeezing a, a, a uh, square peg into a round hole. And it's so frustrating for parents and it's so unsafe for the kids. Tell us uh, about the podcast. So podcast, really important part of this campaign. I don't think, I don't think people understand the, ex the home life, the experiences, the isolation that everybody feels. It, it's huge for parents it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. I know why parents are going to drop their kids off at, at, at the hospital because we can't continue to be all things and work 24-7 all the time. So the podcast actually is a way of telling those stories of the things that we as parents go through. I don't want it to be a gripe session. I don't, there, that we are, I'm just as angry as everybody else. 
But I also understand respectfully uh, passing along a communication message and we're respectively still pleading (laughs) with the government. So I'm hoping for legislative changes at the end of the day is what I'm hoping for. So we are recognized. We are included in the system. No kid has to transfer to anybody and lose all of their health care, previous health care. No child will have to transfer out of pediatric palliative care into something that's not appropriate for their needs and making families scramble to find find that appropriateness. I just felt, what can I do to help bring awareness to this cause? Because every parent I talk to in my community, <laughs> which is, is going through the exact same thing. My biggest fear is that A child like Zach with a neurological disease and not a physical could be misinterpreted the wrong way and beat up by somebody as we see happen all the time, right? That's my biggest fear. And him, he goes into flight or fright. And so- He feels vulnerable. Oh, he's so vulnerable. Those, Those things just frighten me. I guess. Really frightening. us all, but you more so, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, Where do you see yourself in 10 years? Hopefully with a flourishing practice. <laughs> this has been a bit of a detour for me. I, I needed to do this uh, for healing and being able to move forward and know that I've, I've done something. This campaign is not going to go away anytime soon until there is legislative change. And it might just get a little bit more open for for stories. But uh, in 10 years, I'll be 66. (laughs) I hope to still be doing my practice kind of the way I am, but I really hope by that time that Zachary is someplace in the community with friends and safe Mm. and having a life on his own that's not just with mom. But yeah, that's that's my goal is being able to get him to a safe safe place before I am no longer here. All right, changing track here a little to the quick round. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you're too busy, but are you reading or watching or binging anything right now that you'd like to recommend? Oh, I am. So I'm a big uh, Skinwalker Ranch Oak Island follower. You don't know it. Oh my gosh, Oak Island, the island off of Nova Scotia that they're looking for the buried treasure. Don't know anything about that. And Skinwalker Ranch is about the, they're looking for alien portals. (laughs) Okay. And have scientific, and they're using science, just like Oak Island did, to open up a world from present or future. And where do you see these programs? On the History Channel. Oh, okay. Yeah, and the book that I read latest was Next. <laughs> Next was a big exc- exclamation mark by Joanne Lippman. And it was very helpful in identifying that probably back when I was trying. So one of my goals was to be more, get out of isolation a little bit more and, and go out, reconvene with friends and networking and all kinds of stuff. So this book actually told me that the place that I was in, in that no man's land, sort of between, which I feel like I've been in since the pandemic, Mm -hmm. 
I feel like I'm kind of in this, I'm kind of in that. I'm, and and, there, and it told me that that's a natural place to be when you're going to the next thing. Yeah. Yes. Well, I know that you're up to your derriere and, and work for this campaign. Is there anything else that you're working on? Uh, yes, I do work for Roger Nielsen House right now. So I've been working with them for the past year in re-strategizing communications and marketing for them, positioning, telling their brand story, social media, as you know. Mm-hmm. So that is a paid a paid gig, but they are a not-for-profit and I love that work. So, and uh, yeah, they're just amazing people. Steve and I have been heavily involved for many, many years in the Kiwanis Club of Ottawa. More my husband. Oh, I never knew that. Yeah, Steve is past president. And I have to say they're the most wonderful, caring, giving group of people. And if I could reposition them really quickly <laughs> so that they appeal to a younger audience, I would. <laughs> they are a fantastic group of very kind-hearted souls that do well, we used to do everything from painting the, the mission to turkey deliveries at Christmas. Mm-hmm. So my kids mm-hmm. grew up with turkey deliveries since day one. We've right. been out delivering those. So, yeah, so we're heavily involved in that. Is there an over 50s life hack you'd like to share? Exercise. <laughs> well, we're laughing, but you're right, because it's just so important. And it is oh. it seems to drop off the to-do list most easily, isn't it? It is. And in our work, which my Gen Z son says, I never want to sit behind a computer and work all day like you and dad do. But yeah, you're sitting behind a computer all the time. When I worked in an office, I was up front, out back. I was all over the place all, all the time. I was rarely at my desk. And now I'm stuck here. So over 50, your bones do get creaky. Yes. <laughs> and and. Really stretching, exercise, yoga, just generally taking care of yourself is really important. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience before we sign off? Women rock. Yeah, we so do. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. This this is the end of my 50 Women Over 50 podcast journey. And you put a perfect bow on top of it by ending it with Women Rock. <laughs> well, you're a prime example of Women Rock. And uh, and I'm uh, thankful to be your 50th interview. Grateful. Thank you. This has been 50 Women Over 50, a podcast for women whose personal confidence is born of experience. Thank you to my guest, marketing communications consultant and the driving force behind I Care for Rare, Sandra Marcus. She's an amazing mother, a successful business owner, and a force to be reckoned with. She's the perfect guest for this show's last episode. It's been my absolute pleasure to have been your host for these 50 interviews. I've learned so much through this project. I feel more connected to my peers than I ever have, and I've made lots of new friends. It's given me a new sense of confidence and a sense of empowerment to take life on in this third phase. And although you will no longer be hearing my voice on this podcast each week, you can join Sandra and me on the I Care for Rare podcast. It's out now and you can subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts from. See this show's notes to find links to Sandra's socials, the I Care for Rare podcast, 
and to information about some of the many things that we talked about on today's show. Listeners from around the world, I appreciate your having taken the time to come on this journey with me. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please share a link to it with your friends and drop a rating or a review on Apple or wherever you get your podcast from. You can also find the show on YouTube and please follow me on social media too. Let's connect. Please become part of this community of wise women over 50. Now it's time to say goodbye from the 50 Women Over 50 podcast. I'm your host, Sherry Lynn Starkey.